Hi, everyone, and welcome to episode 101 of the Tick Bootcamp podcast. The title of today's interview is The Young Gun, an interview with Alexandra Moresco. My name is Richard Johannesson. And I'm Matt Sabatello. So, Matt, today we start with one of the younger generation of Lyme activists that we've come across during the course of the time we've been doing our podcast. We ended the first 100 episodes of our podcast with Bill Rawls, who is part of the older generation of Lyme activists. And now we have Alex Moresco, who is one of my favorite members of the new generation of Lyme activists. Matt, what did you think about Alex and her interview? Rich, I couldn't agree more. I was so excited to interview Alex Moresco for months. And unfortunately, I had to get called into work for COVID-related matters. But as soon as I was done, I listened to the interview, and she just totally blew me away. So Matt, what I like about this younger generation of Lyme activists is they're bringing a new set of tools to the process of trying to come up with the solution to this Lyme disease problem. And what Alex did for me after I thought about the interview was that she gave me hope. She gave me hope that there is going to be a solution to this problem because in many cases, after we finish our podcast interviews, I'm quite frankly depressed. We talk with folks who in many cases overcome some challenges and there's inspiration that comes from watching them overcome their personal challenges. But the depression for me comes when I feel like there's no hope that, you know, we just have more and more people getting sick. We have more and more young lives being ruined and Ali Moresco really changed my perspective because she gave me hope that she and people like her are going to make sure that we get the changes that are necessary to overcome this challenge. So I really admire Alex Moresco. I admire the group of young people who are forming around her. And I really have hope now that there is going to be a cure for Lyme disease. And Rich, one of the great things that Ali's done recently to show exactly what you just described is she petitioned all the Congress people across the United States through her social media outreach to increase funding with the CDC for Lyme disease. And just yesterday, we won that fight. So Matt, let's uh, now cut to the interview with Alex Moresco. Hey, Alex, and welcome to the program. How are you? I'm good. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited. Well, we're really excited to have you too. We've, uh, you know, we've already shared with you that we've been stalking you and your great work for a long time. So uh, we're really blessed to have you join us today. And I know the folks who are followers of this podcast are really going to benefit from hearing your story. So thank you for joining us. Oh, thanks for having me. So Alex, can you share with us where you live and where you grew up? Yes. So I live in Chicago, um, right near like the Lincoln Park area. And I grew up in the suburbs of Chicago in um, Naperville, but I went to college at DePaul in the city and then fell in love with it and just never left. So So during your childhood, what were you pursuing? What kind of goals did you set out for yourself? And why did you go to the college you went to? So I, I went to a small Catholic high school. I played sports. I played tennis and volleyball. And I did a lot of work for like the food pantry and was very focused on school. So that I was kind of like that nerdy, quiet kid. And I knew going into college that I was kind of a chicken and I would not want to be far away from my parents because I'm a total homebody. I love my family. We're very, very close. So that's how I chose DePaul in the city. And yeah, it was a great decision. I was a PR and ad major and they have at at some point, I don't know if it still is, it was the number one communications program in the U.S. for colleges. So I kind of lucked out there. Um, Started out as an accounting major, which was a horrible mistake because I'm terrible at math. And then eventually 
found my way into like PR and communications and that's when things kind of clicked for me. So why did you pursue communications? What were your career goals when you decided you were going to pursue this communications path? So I'm kind of like, I'm kind of a weird story. I, my freshman year of college, I decided to start a fashion blog. I've always loved fashion and clothes and how you, you know, put a whole outfit together. And it was before blogs were really a thing. And to my surprise, it actually gained a following. So in a way, I was already kind of doing my own PR and communications and building a following on the internet. And I had no idea, you know, that PR was really even a thing. And then as I started working with brands and working on these partnerships, I was like, oh, I, I think I could actually do this as a career. Um, and that's when I think it was the beginning of my sophomore year of college, I switched my major. So your career found you rather than you finding your career. Yeah, I guess so. That is, you know, that is how it happened. I feel really lucky that it happened that way. And things kind of just fell into place. So let's talk about your life between your sophomore year in college and graduation. How was your health and how were your career pursuits going? So, you know, my freshman year, I started this blog and I loved it. I was very, very dedicated to it. And then by my mid-sophomore year, I got connected with Nike and they were opening up um, like a brick and mortar concept for Nike training club for their app. So I ended up joining this very small team of women to help open the store. Um, and they were doing a lot of like college demographic research and all of these things. And it was when they were starting like influencer seeding. So sending product to influencers. So I helped build their original list for influencer seeding in Chicago. Um, and it was a really rare experience where I really got to learn from the best and these women were like really willing to share everything that they knew. Um, and I really credit that with kind of how I got to where I was by the end of college, which was starting my own firm. Um, and then in the middle there, I think it was end of sophomore year, beginning of junior year, I met my husband who is from Michigan and his family goes up to Northern Michigan and I went with them at the end, it was either end of my sophomore, end of my junior year. And that's where I got bit by a tick. And, you know, we never found a tick and I got very sick. Yeah. So that was towards the end of college. And by the end of college, I was fading pretty quickly, um, but still working full time. Then I think it was a little after a year of being out of college and working full time, I was pretty much bedridden. So Alex, let's, let's focus on your, your professional experiences. So your okay. career. Your career finds you, you change your major, and you're now in the thick of working with some of the top women and one of the top companies in the world with Nike. Yeah, absolutely. So you're, as a, as a college student, you're, you're on top of the world. You're doing really, really well, and you're learning from some of the best, and you're doing some really, really cool things, and then you start to show the symptoms of your tick disease. Let's outline that timeline for our listeners. Where were you in your career path, and how did the symptoms begin to develop? I had started a fairly successful company. It was called Amoresco PR and Content Creation, and started out, I worked with a lot of like local clients to Chicago and then eventually built up my roster and worked, you know, with some larger companies. I kind of got 
lucky, I guess. And there's, I don't know if you're familiar with a drink with, um, it's probably actually something you would really like, but it was a website and the host Hillary Sawchuk would sit down with celebrities and have a drink with people. And we're talking about like John Legend and Chrissy Teigen, Richard Branson, Bethany Frankel, like really big A-list celebrity names. Um, and she reached out to me and she was like, I got a deal with Acura to go to Sundance Film Festival and I want you to go with me. So that was kind of my first client and that was my sophomore year and it happened accidentally. This woman just called me up and was like, can you come and can you help me? And I was like, yeah. So I um, worked with her on social media and talent relations and production. And that's when I kind of dipped my toe in outside of Nike and outside of like my own blog. And so I really felt like, you know, I was headed in the right direction. And that's when I kind of saw my career like aligning and things started to click for me. And then a few years, you know, later, probably two years into that, by my senior year was when I started to get sick and experience symptoms. And my first symptoms were like, a, it was like a cold and a flu, which now looking back on it, I'm like, oh my God, it, you know, <laughs> it was the first stages of Lyme and I had no idea. Now let's talk about that, Alex. What did you know about ticks and tick diseases at that time in your life? You know, I did not know anything. I think like a lot of people, you know, I grew up, my mom always sprayed us because my mom actually grew up in New York, New Jersey, Connecticut. So she was always very tick aware. But I just think as a kid, like I never really realized, you know, like why she was spraying us with things or chucking us or things like that. And, you know, even my husband's family where they're all from Michigan was not aware. And like, it was never once brought up. Nobody sprayed themselves. Nobody wore, you know, the long socks and the long colored light clothing. And so I had no idea. And here I was like a total city girl going up to Ludington, Michigan for the first time. I knew nothing. I knew literally nothing. And now I know everything. So it's kind of ironic. So Alex, do you believe you were bitten by a tick in Michigan or somewhere else? Oh, 100%. It was in Michigan. And you believe that just based on thinking back when your symptoms developed as opposed to you finding a tick biting you? Yes. So I went to Michigan and then I immediately, I did not get a bullseye rash, but within a week of coming back, I developed this like strange rash literally from my head to my toes. And I went to like a dermatologist and they like had no idea what it was. They gave me just like random prescriptions to try to get rid of it and nothing ever got rid of it. And then within probably three or four weeks of, um, coming home from Michigan, I started developing flu-like symptoms. And my GP at Northwestern was like, oh, you have a summer cold. And I probably was in her office every week for like three months. And it was always the same thing. You have a cold, you have a flu. I think you're stressed. I think you're depressed. And it was always something new, you know, when she couldn't figure out or explain why it wasn't going away. So Alex, let's walk back to the first doctor you went to see. You said you went to see a dermatologist. Was that in Michigan or is that in Chicago? No, it's in Chicago. I live in Chicago, but we visit my husband's family who lives in Michigan often. So the symptoms or at least the, the rash did not begin to develop until after you had come home from Michigan and you were in Chicago. Yeah. So probably within a week of getting back though. 
So knowing what you now know, was it clearly a Lyme rash or was there something unique about the rash that would have even with the knowledge set and the skill set you have now would have caused you to doubt whether or not that was a Lyme rash? Um, I mean, it wasn't your standard bullseye. So I don't know how I would have made the connection, but now I would definitely think it was linked to some kind of tick-borne disease, whether it's Lyme or, you know, something else. Cause I now know I have a whole host of like co-infections and things that can cause all of these weird skin presentations. But yeah, I don't think your average person would know that. And absolutely at the time I was like your average person unaware. But the bigger question is why wouldn't the average dermatologist know that the, oh, that I, the rash that you had was a Lyme rash? You know, I ask myself that. And I also ask myself my GP at the time, a couple of months into this, probably three months into this, my mom, you know, started going to the doctor with me because it was just getting ridiculous. And my mom had asked my GP to test me for Lyme disease. And I will never forget what she said. She had said, anyone, any doctor that tests you for Lyme disease is a charlatan. It does not exist. I think back to it, not as often anymore, because I think the anger has died down, you know, after a few years. But just like, it's ridiculous that we still have people in the medical profession that are so unaware and uneducated. So now, Alex, talk to us about how the rising star is now being affected. I mean, you're 22 years old and you have a fashion blog. You've worked with Nike. You're working with Acura. I mean, your star is just taking off at 22 years old, but now you're getting sick. Talk to us about how your illness and your developing symptoms are impacting your rising star. Well, that's very kind of you. Um, I think, you know, it's funny. I remember thinking to myself at one point, I was like, oh my God, have I just been out of college for this long that like my brain is starting to deteriorate? Like what is going on? Um, because my memory was just fading and I would have conversations and not have no recollection and just, I was like very scattered and disorganized. And I'm typically like a very structured person and I'm an overachiever and I'm very ambitious. And I was just struggling. Um, and I didn't know why, and nobody around me knew why. And it was just very, very frustrating. So I tried to push forward for a long time as if nothing was wrong. And then it wasn't until I like really, really started to lose my memory and I was just so beyond exhausted that I was like, okay, I have to figure this out. And that's just kind of how it went. I mean, it wasn't really like as far as my career, like it wasn't a choice, if that makes sense. It just, I had to stop, you know, I couldn't keep going. So Alex, how is this affecting your family? You shared with us earlier that you're from a very close family and you wanted to go to college in close proximity to your family. How are your developing symptoms and the changes in you affecting your family? So I lived on my own all through college. And thankfully, I think it was meant to be my senior year of college. My parents moved into the city and I, you know, was just getting sicker and sicker. After I finished college, I moved back in with my parents because we just didn't know what was going on. And, you know, I'm thankful that like, you know, my parents are so understanding and supportive and they've really been the ones, them, you know, and my husband, DJ, 
they've been the ones to really rally around me and get me to where I am now. But I think, you know, illness, it can either drive you further apart or closer together. And I think thankfully in our situation, it brought everyone closer together. We have certainly seen during the almost 100 podcasts we've done that it's very important to have a close family and family support if you're going to get through this, this, this challenge. But unfortunately, what we see in most cases is that we see abandonment, a part of this process that, that, that people begin to lose faith in family members in part because they get sick of them being sick and in yep. part because we have the medical community telling us there's nothing wrong with you. So yep. talk to us about how your mom and your dad, I, I would like to talk about DJ separately. How were your mom and your dad reacting to the doctors essentially telling you there's nothing wrong with you that maybe you're stressed or depressed? My mom, you know, my mom was the one that went through most of this with me. My dad is very busy and he's not, he travels like five, not right now, but he travels like five, six days a week for work. So it was kind of just my mom and I, and my mom went to all my appointments with me to all of, you know, at one point they were, they thought maybe I had thyroid cancer. So I had my thyroid biopsied twice and all of these things. And one of the specialists you know, looked at me and said, you're stressed. This is all in your head. You need to get on antidepressants. And it made my mom so angry. And thankfully my mom was just always in my corner. And if, you know, if you ever talk to my mom about this, she's the first one to say, you know, that there's something wrong with your child just, you know, when their whole demeanor and their whole personality changes, like somebody doesn't go from being like driven and, and ambitious and independent to wanting to be in bed all the time. Like nobody would choose that path. So, you know, I was very lucky that I had my mom really to support me in in my corner with this because you're absolutely right. You know, when you have doctors that are supposed to be our experts looking at you and saying, oh, there's nothing wrong with you. um, I think we just tend to trust what they tell us and we don't really question things and it's not until you're in the thick of something that you're like, no, some, this is not right. Something is off here. And, and I would think Alex, even a precocious and successful 22 year old, the way you were at the time that you were going these, through these challenges would probably be hesitant to challenge doctors, but you yeah. had your, you had your mom there with you and, and she was of course not sick and she yes. knew there were changes in you and she knew that you would never choose any of this. So how was your mom interfacing with your doctors and what impact was that having on your doctors? So what ended up happening was I think there was only like one specialist, like a thyroid specialist that we saw twice who was like blatantly very rude and condescending. And at first, like with my GP, my mom did, you know, back down to her because you just trust what they tell you. And then by the end of it, it took me two years to get diagnosed, which I know sadly is a short amount of time for most people looking to get a diagnosis. But by the end of it, she just wasn't really putting up with it. And then we'd, you know, go on to the next one. We just never, you know, my mom never gave up. I never gave up. And we just kept trying to figure it out until we found somebody that would listen. So Alex, how many doctors did you see between the time that you first started showing symptoms that brought you to a doctor and the time that you finally got a diagnosis? Honestly, I can't even give you an exact number, but I literally saw specialists, you know, for everything under the sun because I was, you know, told, oh, you probably have this, you probably have that so many times. So it was everything from like 
lupus to MS to thyroid cancer to non-Hodgkin's lymphoma um, to Crohn's. Like it was, you know, every single thing at a different point in time was brought up. And it's funny because it was literally everything but Lyme disease. So it wasn't until the last doctor that was like, you know, I think we should test you for Lyme disease. And we were like, oh, here we are. Here we go. <laughs> so... So no, Alex, you're at this time you're living in Chicago, where yes. where there are some of the top hospitals and medical centers in the world. Oh yeah. You're going to doctor after doctor and you're not getting a diagnosis. Yep. Tell me now looking back at that, how frustrating that was for you. It was incredibly frustrating, I think. Like, you know, we have Northwestern here, we have Rush, we have Loyola, and I saw doctors at all of them. And the fact that at three top hospitals, nobody could figure this out and nobody was willing to look outside of the box of what they were taught or what they were aware of is very disappointing. I think just in general of our medical field. And I know that's not just specific to Chicago, but looking back on it, I think the most frustrating, disappointing thing is that they just want to fit you in the box. They want to fit your symptoms in the box. And if there's anything outside of something that's not, they're not aware of it just in their heads, it means it's not true or you're making it up or, you know, it's mental illness. And in reality, that's not true. You know, there's tons of things that go on with the body and that go off, go wrong with the body. And just because it's something that they're not aware of doesn't make it false. And that, you know, was very disappointing. Now, Alex, I'm going to ask you the charge question that keeps coming up, so I have to keep asking it. Do you believe that your gender played a role in the medical community's failure to diagnose you? You know, I think that unfortunately, um, women in pain are not, and I, you know, the same thing goes for men, right? We've all probably experienced it in relation to getting this diagnosis, this specific tick-borne illness diagnosis, because it is so controversial, even though it should not be. I think women's pain is not taken as seriously. I think we are seen as being, you know, dramatic and sensitive and emotional. Um, and, you know, who isn't with Lyme disease because it impacts you neurologically. But I do think it takes us longer to get diagnosed because of it. And I have a very close friend that, you know, fortunately does not have tick-borne illness, but has other illnesses. And she has been treated terribly because of it. And it's, you know, totally around like very sensitive topics of not being able to have children. Um, you know, surgery is very serious diagnoses. And she's always had these male doctors that have kind of just treated her terribly. And you hear these stories and you're like, how can people not have more compassion around these sensitive subjects and this type of um, excruciating pain? And I hope that you know, women sharing their stories and speaking up and a lot of the things we've seen, you know, really in the past year, I hope it helps influence the medical field to take women more seriously. So let's talk about the social impact that this disease has had on you. And I specifically want to focus still on that window of time between when you're 20, uh, 22 and 24. So how were your developing symptoms impacting your social life? And I, and I want to segregate DJ for a minute, your husband from okay. everyone else. How were your other friends relating to you and interacting with you now that you went from being this really hard charging, successful young woman, and now you're starting to get sick? 
So I think I was like, you know, I was never really like a party girl. I was never that exciting. Um, but I did have a good um, close group of friends in college that unfortunately, as I got sicker, really did not understand. And I lost pretty much all of those friends. I only have one friend that like really stuck around. And this whole thing, I think, brought us closer, fortunately. But I think just at that age, like in your early 20s, other people just cannot imagine being that sick. And I was angry for a really long time, you know, that those people like left me and left me in this time of like critical need. And now I think back on it and I'm like, you know, I can't blame them. I get it. Um, You just can't imagine that type of pain or like, you know, when your friend says, let's go to dinner and you're like, oh, I can't, you know, I can't get out of bed. And they're like, oh, it's just one dinner. What's the big deal? So it was very hard. And a lot of my circle in PR and in communications is very, very disappointing because I lost a lot of that circle. And, you know, I think once kind of something happens to you, it's like you find out who your real friends are and who kind of was just around you because of like what you can get them or give them or the connections you have. So that was a hard lesson to learn, um, but I guess one that I needed. So Alex, let's now talk about one of the positive parts of your social world, and that is your husband, DJ. You you shared with us a little while ago that you and DJ met before you had gotten sick while you were in college. Yes. And one of the patterns that we've seen develop here, and we actually did an episode entitled, Can Romance Survive Lyme? Um, and, um, And what we see, unfortunately, Unlike you, in most cases, romance cannot survive Lyme. That in most cases, romantic relationships are destroyed by Lyme disease. And I'd like you to share with us um, why you think you are able to continue to have a relationship with, with the man who met you when you were at your peak. Because I'm sure part of what attracted DJ to you is that you were this very successful woman who was at a very young age having unbelievable career success before you even graduated from college. So you were this high charging, you know, this hard charging, very successful blogger, uh, young woman working with some of the top women in the business community in Chicago, working uh, with Nike, working with Acura and all of those things I'm sure were very attractive to him. I'm sure there are other things, including your appearance that were attractive to him. So why do you think despite all the change that you went through that this guy was willing to stay with you? I think thankfully, you know, like, like my mom, my husband has been one of my biggest champions and he, I give a lot of credit, you know, to the way that he was raised. He was raised really well. And I think he was raised in a way to know that like when times get tough, you don't abandon the person you're with. And I think it was, for me, it was like a gradual slip into illness, if that makes sense. And I think similar to like how my parents saw me, you know, you know that it's not a choice, you know that um, there's a reason for it. And he also, you know, was just trying to figure it out. And he's always been so supportive of me and anything I've ever wanted to do or try. And yeah, it was a weird, a very strange like turn of events when I had to stop working because one of the reasons that I love my husband and admire him is because he is just as ambitious, you know, as I was. And I think, you know, I still am just in a different way. Together, we were very passionate, you know, about our separate careers. And 
shared a lot of similar values. And then when that changes, you know, it is a strange thing and a strange dynamic. But I think thankfully for me, and I know we'll get into this, so I won't talk about it too much now, I kind of shifted my focus right away to fundraising. And, you know, I was able then to still have like my own passion, which was really nice. Let's say with the romance part of this, though, and, and let's give you a little bit more credit, too. And I, and I appreciate that you're being very kind in the way you're describing your husband as a good man who was raised by good people. But there's also got to be something special about you as well, because you're going through all kinds of change. You're going through physical changes. You're going through emotional changes. You're going through intellectual changes. You have all kinds of things going on. You don't know why you're sick yet you're still able to stay in a healthy relationship. So tell us about what you did and what other Limeys can do so that you can continue to have healthy relationships with people in a romantic setting. I think that um, communication is a big thing. And I think with like Lime Brain, it can be really difficult to communicate what you want and um, or need and you know our partners can't read our minds so I just always made sure that I was very open and honest about what I was experiencing or feeling or thinking Um, and I think that's what got us through a lot of this was that open communication and we still tried you know to enjoy each other's company and that absolutely changed you know we couldn't really go out anymore, go, you know, to cocktail bars or whatever. But um, we just started doing other things and playing board games and watching movies and working on projects and doing puzzles and things that were very low effort, but still just enjoyable where we could just spend time together and still make time to enjoy, you know, just the two of us in a way that typically we would, you know, by going out on like date night on Friday um, or whatever that looks like. So we absolutely, you know, we both had to adapt and change our lifestyles, but it was a change, you know, that we were willing to make for each other to get through the beginning stages of me getting sick. So Alex, while you're going through your diagnostic journey and you are being diagnosed with everything other than Lyme. Were you beginning to doubt whether or not you were really sick? Did you start to doubt yourself? You know, I think at certain points you do kind of feel like you're crazy. And, you know, every time something came back as negative, you're like, oh, thank God it's not that. And little did I know, you know, I was in store for this whole other thing. But yeah, you do kind of feel crazy at a certain point as the years go by. Like, Why do I feel this way? Why can nobody figure it out? And I think thankfully, like I never gave up on it, but I could see where it it is very defeating, especially mentally. Well, what role did DJ and your mom, who seem to be the two rocks in your life, play in preventing, they, they just simply didn't join the chorus in your head or the chorus from the medical community where they were saying you were crazy, right? You had two really solid people in your life who were not joining the chorus of of telling you you were crazy. They both, you know, I spent a lot of time crying and doubting and they both echoed the same message that no matter what, we would figure this out, that, you know, not to give up, we would figure this out. So that was, you know, their sentiment to me frequently and I think that's a big part of what kept me going 
to eventually, you know, find my diagnosis. So now let's talk about the diagnosis. When and where did you finally get a Lyme disease diagnosis? So I um, was kind of desperate by the time I got it to figure out what was wrong with me. So I actually, this goes way back um, when I was little, like very little, I used to get reoccurring mycoplasma pneumonia and nothing was like was helping. And my mom found a couple actually that worked at Rush University and they were doing Chinese medicine in conjunction with Western medicine. And they're the ones actually through Western medicine and acupuncture that actually helped me heal when I was little. So I was like, I'm going to see if I can find these doctors. And I tracked one of them down and Dr. Dumont, and he was at the Raby Institute within Northwestern, which is, who would have thought Northwestern has like an integrative medicine practice, but they do. And um, he was not accepting new patients. And I like found his email and I blindly sent him this email and was like, I don't know if you'll remember me, but um, you helped me when I was little and this is what I'm going through. And will you please see me? And like literally days later, he got me in and he started testing me for things. And um, he put me on like homeopathic supplements to try to just start treating some of the individual symptoms. Then eventually he was like, you know, I think we should test you for Lyme disease. And it had just so happened that exactly a year earlier, he had seen his first ever case of Lyme and a woman presenting with the exact same symptoms. And that's how he thought to test me. And he tested me just with what he knew, which was a Western blot. And thankfully he knew enough that it, my test did not come back positive, but I had a bunch of different bars come back. And he was like, I really still think we need to explore this. And he referred me to a specialist, Dr. Merez at Fox Valley Wellness in Wisconsin. And he's actually the one that you know, did all of the um, hygienics blood work and all of this other stuff to confirm it. And he's the one that actually eventually diagnosed me. Um, but it was Dr. Juman at the Raby Institute that finally put it together that it was Lyme disease. So now, Alex, let's talk about testing and the challenges associated with testing. Now, looking back, how blessed do you feel that you had a doctor who was willing to first give you a Lyme disease test and then secondly look past the CDC standards and recommend that you see another doctor so that you could get a more comprehensive battery of tests to give you a diagnosis? Oh my gosh, I feel so blessed and so lucky. Um, one of my angels or all of them were absolutely looking out for me with that. And because the, just the fact that, you know, it didn't come back positive and he didn't just write it off as, you know, another failed test is like a miracle in my eyes at this point. So I feel very, very lucky that that happened because I know sadly it's not often that um, medical professionals that aren't familiar with Lyme even know that testing is 55% inaccurate. And I think that that's a stat from the Global Lyme Alliance website. I'm not sure if it's been updated since, but you know that's a major problem with this is that we need accurate testing or people end up like me and go years and years undiagnosed, misdiagnosed. And then you know it, it really changed my whole life and changed my trajectory that that one doctor knew 
that testing wasn't accurate or, you know, who knows where I would be at this point. So Alex, let's now talk about what's happening with your career path at this time. You're going through your diagnostic journey, you're sick and you're not able to continue to pursue the career path that you were on in college. What are you starting to do now that you're going through this diagnostic journey and finally getting your diagnosis? At this point, I really was not working at all. And I, you know, I think a lot of us, and it goes back to, you know, why you and Matt started the podcast as well. You, once you start researching what it means to get a Lyme diagnosis and you learn that, you know, insurance will not cover treatment and all of these things, you just feel this need to do something. So at this point, I was not working at all. And I was like, oh my God, I have to do something about this for other people. And that's how I ended up getting in touch with um, Global Lyme Alliance. And I narrowed all of my efforts to fundraising and trying to build a community here in the Midwest because there really, no one was doing anything. And we all know that when you have something like Lyme, you really need support. So career-wise, it was non-existent. I think my outlook and my where I wanted to put my energy had just drastically shifted. And the talents that found you when you were in college were now taking you to another place. It's almost like regardless of what you want to do, Alex, your public relations and communication talents are going to take you to one place or another. Yeah, absolutely. And I feel like um, everything was kind of not necessarily meant to be because I wouldn't say that tick-borne illness is meant to be for anyone but the skill set that I had was meant to be, you know, to be able to flip that and apply that to um, fundraising and helping others. I don't think I could have done it without the skill set that I had in PR and events and um, like digital media. So I was lucky that, you know, I kind of already knew that stuff. So now you have a diagnosis. What is your plan? What is your healing plan now that you have your diagnosis? So my original healing plan, I worked with a doctor under Dr. Merez at Fox Valley Wellness, and he was a mostly holistic um, practitioner, which absolutely, you know, works for some people, you know, that's what's so hard with Lyme is that what works for you might not work for me, right? And he put me on pretty much an all natural path and it helped a little bit, but I still continued to deteriorate. And I think that he just had, I don't want to say more faith than he should have, but his outlook was you're young, you'll bounce back from this because you're only, you know, 20 something years old. And I think we just weren't aggressive with it right off the bat. So my original doctor had said, oh, in six months, you'll be fine. And, um, you know, six months later, I was getting married and could barely stand up. And I was absolutely not fine. (laughs) So Alex, what, what treatment protocol did they offer to you initially? Were you taking antibiotics or was it something else that you were, you were using? I was taking one oral antibiotic and I don't remember which one it was. Um, It might've actually, actually been doxy. And I was just on a lot of supplements, um, a lot of you know, just tons. And I think I was taking like 50 pills a day at least and like multiple times a day. And I was just on a ton of supplements. And um, that's really all that I was doing for the first probably six months of my treatment. 
So your health continued to decline despite your initial treatment. So what did that cause you to do? So eventually the Dr. Mraz, who's the owner and now the sole doctor at Fox Valley Wellness, he started coming and sitting in on my appointments and changing a lot of things to be more aggressive. Um, so that was kind of the second step in my treatment. And then I started to notice little improvements here and there. And then eventually Dr. Mrez took me on as his um, patient, patient and I adore him and I have a very close relationship with him now. And he gave me a PIC line, put me on IV Rosefrin. I started ozone therapy. And I think I give that, I give a lot of credit to that phase of my treatment for being what got me over the hump of like being bedridden and getting me out of bed um, and nowhere near, you know, normal at that point. But it made me a little bit of a functioning human being again. Let's just capture the essence of what changed when Dr. Merez took you on as a patient. You went from taking oral antibiotics and some other form of supplement for about six months and you continued to decline. Then I guess shortly after you got married, you and Dr. Merez started to work together more closely and with a more aggressive antibiotic and with ozone therapy, you started to now regain your health. Yes, absolutely. That sounds correct. <laughs> so for how long a period of time were you taking the Receferin and taking the ozone treatment and why did you pivot from that to something else? So I did the IV Rosefrin for a very long time. I was on it for almost a year at varying doses because when I would come off of it, I would immediately crash. So I actually very recently just came off of it maybe a month ago. And it's the first time in like over a year that I haven't been on some form of IV antibiotic. But the what really happened was I... Um, ended up last, not this past February, um, the one before this, I got diagnosed with dysautonomia and it explained a lot of my symptoms. And we started looking into some of these other like residual symptoms that I was having that Dr. Mrez believed now were caused by things other than tick-borne illness. And I ended up doing an immune challenge and I was diagnosed with a severe immunodeficiency. So we, he wanted me to go on IVIG and my insurance company fought it for a year. And then finally in October, it was approved and I started it. And that has actually really been what has gotten me so much healthier than I even got from the IV Rosefrin. Yeah, I actually now credit IVIG with being a really large part of my healing process. Um, but that's why, you know, we moved on to this next phase of treatment. So Alex, we've had a lot of our past guests describe Lyme disease as very much like an onion, that you have to peel off one layer of the yeah. onion before you can get to the next. Absolutely. So if you were to use that metaphor, would you believe that the, the IV antibiotics and the ozone sort of took the first layer of the onion off so that you could regain enough health so that you can now take the next step in your journey? Yes. Yeah, I think so. I think there's many complicated layers, you know, to this disease. And as you peel away one layer, um, you know, something else pops up. So 
that's what's so difficult about it. But yeah, I definitely think the ozone and um, thoroughsafrin in combination help to kind of hack away at those first couple of layers to eventually, you know, get to more underlying issues. Now, Alex, I think I heard you say that you have an autoimmune, an immune deficiency that is not related to your tick disease. Is that correct? So I have um, SAD, which is a severe immunodeficiency. And I did not have this when I first got sick. So although it's not proven and there has not been serious research funding dedicated to this, we believe, and my doctor does believe that it's the Lyme, you know, that shut down my immune system. And he also believes, and I, you know, wholeheartedly believe this too, that it's the Lyme that kind of unlocks things um, and brings these things to the surface in the same way that like an autoimmune disease would. So although maybe a traditional MD would say, oh, these are all separate things, I really think it's all connected. So you believe it is a, an immune deficiency as a consequence of your collective tick diseases, not just a genetic disorder? Yeah. Oh, I absolutely um, I think Lyme is a very smart bug and it systematically, you know, shuts things down. And I think it's a, um, you know, people say, oh, tick-borne illness, Lyme disease, it won't kill you. And in reality, yeah, it does. It's just, it's not immediate. It's a slow, painful death where you just wither away because it's systematically shutting down different parts of your body. So I really think it's all related if you have different if you're like me and you have these different um, conditions, I do think that somehow if we were to put funding into it, we would find that it really is all connected. And, and I'm sure that it is still connected, which is why I wanted to emphasize that portion of my question. Yeah. Uh, now, of course, and one of the challenges that we have with Lyme disease, and it's why I'm often uncomfortable with just using the word Lyme disease rather than tick disease, because yeah. tick diseases are really you know, a combination of bacteria and viruses and parasites that are being spit into you. And because it's a, you know, a multi-infection, we often see, you know, the immune system being shut down, even when the Lyme disease itself or the Lyme bacteria itself seems to have been removed from the system. So tell me about uh, what other treatments you've done to treat the different layers in the onion and where you are now? I, like I kind of was saying, and I know, you know, I, we've already kind of talked about this off, off of here, but I've tried, tried it all as I think a lot of us have. And I think different treatments have been very useful to me at certain parts, you know, of my journey, depending on, you know, what I was battling and, um, you're absolutely right. I think it's it's doing it. Uh, it's not doing the disease justice to just call it Lyme disease because we often get all these other things. So, you know, I also have Babesia, Bartonella, Ehrlichia, um, and you have to kind of systematically treat all of these as they pop up. So, you know, I've also done anti-malarials. I've done Flaquinol. I've done Mepron for those, which was brutal. There's a lot of vomiting um, during the anti-malarial phases of treatment. And then, you know, I 
on and off have done thoroughsuffering and the ozone and like Myers cocktails and a lot of supplemental um, IV therapy. And then eventually um, I started kind of figuring out that like peptides and amino acids, my body does really well with those. So I actually do daily amino acid drips, um, which has been a big thing for me. And I do hydration therapy with mostly saline for my dysautonomia. Um, and I'll do that just as needed. So typically two to three times a week. And that helps a lot um, with my POTS and dysautonomia symptoms. And, you know, I'm currently on IVIG and that has been a game changer just for everything. So yeah, I would say like, if one thing doesn't work for you, try something else and don't be discouraged because eventually you do find like the right cocktail of things for your body and your symptoms. So Alex, talk to us about the game changers. For you, it sounds like there were two game changers. It was the IV antibiotics with the ozone and then the IVIG. Are they the two major treatment protocols that got you to the point where you are today? Yes. So I think the first piece of it was the IV antibiotic and the ozone. And then I think the second piece of it was IVIG. I think IVIG in general, it just lifts up your body and it supports, you know, every function of your system. And um, the first probably like six weeks of it were brutal. It is. And you know, I'm somebody with tick-borne illness and I'm saying that it's exhaustion. Like you've never felt exhaustion, you know, it's bad and it gives you pretty terrible histamine reactions. So you do have to be very careful with the dosage. Um, so you're not, you know, triggering like MCAS. So I started on a very low dose of it and have slowly been working my way up. But overall, I've seen my energy increase. I have seen my neurological problems decrease. I've seen my brain function and my mental function increase. And those are things, you know, I, have, I haven't seen in all of my years of treatment thus far. And then I would say the second piece of that is kind of supplementing that with peptide therapy. And I personally do thymosin alpha-1 injections and... I did it 30 days for every day. And then my doctor took me down to just doing it twice a week. And um, pretty immediately after starting those injections, we saw my T cell count go up and my white blood cell count go up. So I do think two of those, the two of those therapies in conjunction with each other have been very, very helpful, have been truly game changers. Alex, let's, let's talk about the battle you had to go through in order to be able to start the IVIG. Yeah. You shared with me a little bit earlier that you had to battle with your insurance company for about a year before you were able to get this protocol approved. Can you share with us what that battle was like and what impact it had on you and your family? It was absolutely brutal. It was probably one of the toughest things that I've gone through because it's just so depressing getting denial after denial. And so this was, I want to make this clear to people that I did not get IVIG approved for tick-borne illness. It was approved for my immunodeficiency. So because IVIG and sub-QIG, any form of IgG therapy is so incredibly expensive, it really can only be approved for immunodeficiencies 
So it was about a year of battling um, with our insurance company for it and just getting all these denials saying that it was, quote, experimental treatment. And it was not until my doctor was like, oh, let's do an immune challenge. And that if those of you listening, like don't know what that is, you take the pneumococcal pneumonia vaccine and then you wait. So you basically, you do blood work before you get the vaccine and then you do it. It's like four or six weeks after you get the vaccine to see what kind of response your immune system mounts. And um, like a normal reaction, it's between, it's on a scale of like zero to 10 and a normal one, it's between eight and 10. I, my immune system did not even amount to a one, to a 1%. So um, we found out that I was severely immunocompromised and we reapplied. Um, actually, this was the last time we were going to reapply for the IVIG before I was going to go see a doctor in New York um, to try to start this process all over. And it was the applying with the blood work from the immune challenge and getting the diagnosis um, of an immunodeficiency that finally got me approved because I have people all the time, like every other day that send me messages on Instagram and they're like, how did you get it approved for Lyme disease? And I'm like, it was not for Lyme disease. This is what you have to do. And if you don't do this, you're not going to get it approved. And it's sad. It's a sad reality, but it's like how the um, insurance system works and it's brutal. It was a solid year of the denials. And, um, I, you know, I'm still on my parents insurance. My dad cobra me so that we didn't have to reapply them through my husband's insurance when I turned 26. But it was a year of my dad, like every day on the phone, um, with our insurance company, like just fighting with them about this because they just let you get sicker and sicker and sicker. Um, and it's a disgrace. You know, we don't practice preventative care in this country. We practice reactive care. And I really do, after this whole experience, just think that they, like, you are just a dollar amount to them. And it's like a sad reality. But yeah, I'm like, it's depressing and it's very saddening. But um, if you're going through a battle like that, do not give up because eventually something will get it approved. It's just finding out what the right thing is. Well, Alex, I have to make another observation that is part of the reason why you've had success with this is again, your very strong support system, right? You have your mom, you have your, your, your dad, you have your husband. And now, now we have your dad now surfacing as the guy who's in there battling with the insurance company every single day, even though you probably didn't have the, you know, the, the energy to do that on your own. No, absolutely not. Yeah. I was very lucky that my dad stepped up and took that on because I know, you know, it was a lot for him emotionally and just, you know, with all the other stuff, you know, that we as individuals have going on, the fact that he stepped up and took care of that, I don't think we would have gotten it approved any other way. Yeah, I feel very lucky and very blessed to have the support system that I have. It's been a big, very large piece to my healing journey. So Alex, let's talk about the risks of the IVIG protocol. You shared with us earlier that we, you had to be really careful because of the histamine response and the impact that that could have. Could yeah. you share with our listeners um, what those risks are and how you evaluated the risks when deciding to go forward with this protocol? So 
I think thankfully, and I honestly, I will be honest with you, I'm not fully educated on the risks because I am the type of person where once I get something in my head, I convince myself that it's happening. And I think a big part of that is like the Lyme and the Babesia and um, how it impacted me neurologically. I just have to be so careful. So the only thing um, that I was really aware of, I guess, was the greatest risk. And that is, I mean, it can, you can have an allergic reaction. It can give you an anaphylactic reaction. And that was my greatest fear. And that's why I actually take a a lot of Benadryl before and after, because it does cause me... um, I don't know if you would say moderate um, histamine reactions. I run a low-grade fever. I get hives, and the injection site swells up. And that's why my doctor actually, probably 12 weeks into the treatment, he did all the blood work for histamine reactions and MCIS just to make sure that that was not happening for me. So I think if you have a doctor that really knows what they're doing and is aware of the risks, um, you can kind of trust them to look at what needs to be looked at and not overburden yourself. Because I know that it can be really difficult to take that all on like in your own brain. Um, You have to kind of trust the people that you're working with. But I think at that point for me, I was just getting sicker and sicker and I knew that if we didn't find something drastic, I wasn't going to get any better. So I was like totally on board, you know, with doing IVIG. And I talked to a lot of people um, in the community, in the Lyme community about how IVIG had helped them. And that for me was a big thing and a very positive thing was hearing about how it helped other people. And I think that's ultimately how I really decided to move forward with it. So let's talk about the impact it's now had. Share with us where you were before you started the IVIG therapy and where you are now. When I started, I was still not doing great. I was still on IV antibiotics. I was still extremely low energy and my neurological function was not great. And Now, I think this past week I had my 19th IVIG treatment. I go weekly. And now I absolutely, I have more energy. My pain has gone down. My neurological function has gone up. So overall, it's really positively impacted everything. And um, I'm just able to be a higher functioning human being and live my life um, with a, with a better quality of life. I will in theory do IVIG for about a year to a year and a half, but who really knows? I mean, I'll do it, you know, as long as I have to, I'm happy to keep doing it. So we'll see where it goes. So can you put some more meat on the bone for us? Share with us what kinds of things you couldn't do before you started the IVIG and the kinds of things you are able to do now that you're doing the IVIG. Well, I think it's, it's as simple as like, I'm able to go for long walks again. You know, it's something that I think healthy people take for granted, like just walking. And then when you're so sick, you're like, oh my gosh, I just want to go for a nice like walk. Um, so it's as simple as things like that. And then it's as, you know, largest things like, you know, I'm now able to work on, you know, projects that I'm passionate about and do more and take on more of the things, you know, that I used to be able to do, like working and, 
spending more time with my friends and my family and putting more efforts into awareness and fundraising and um, just being able to utilize my brain more and then not have to stay in bed, you know, for two weeks. And it's like all of the little things kind of add up if that makes sense. It's like these little gradual changes and then you're like, Oh, I'm doing it. You know, like I am not fully back, but I'm getting there. And that's how, you know, I kind of got to the number when you had asked me what number are you functioning at like 67% because I'm not quite all the way there, but I'm like, absolutely. I'm over the hump. Like I'm more than half and I'm getting there. And I know that I'll never be 100% again, but you know, I'm happy with where I'm at and I'm thankful to be where I'm at with this whole thing. So I, I do have to come back to the 67%. <laughs> we asked that question of all of our guests on our uh, pre-interview questionnaire, and you're the only one to have given us a number like that. So give us some more, <laughs> give us some more insight into the, the mind of Alex and how she can come to a number like 67% for, uh, you know, the percentage of recovery that you're at. Well, I said it earlier, I'm a weird duck, so I guess that just proves that if no one else has ever said it. Um, but actually, every time I see Dr. Merez, they ask you, what percent are you at? And I think I always tend to say like 60%, 70%, 40%. And in reality, there is this kind of gradual change in between those numbers, right? Like it's not just 50% or 60%, like you can be somewhere in between. And I think it also depends on like week to week, my number changes. So this week I am feeling good. I'm functioning well. So I'd say I'm almost at 70%, but I'm not quite there yet or on this day. So that's kind of how I got there is it's like that gray space in between. So that's the number that clicked for me. So that's, that's what I went with. <laughs> so let's talk about now the professional transformation you've made. And long before you got to 67%, you began to dedicate your life and your career to raising money for the cause uh, that, we're, that we're discussing here and the purpose of this podcast. So talk to us about what caused you to pivot from the for-profit world to the not-for-profit world. Um, I think your whole world just kind of changes and you see what's really important and you see how much people are struggling. I started, it sounds really silly, but I, while I was sick, I watched a lot of reality TV and I was watching Real Housewives and I saw the episode where Yolanda Hadid goes to the Global Lime Alliance Gala and I was like, oh my God, that's amazing that there's somebody doing something about this. So I, you know, once I started treatment and realized, you know, how wrong it is that really you can only access tick-borne illness treatment if you can afford it, like that's absolutely despicable and disgusting. I was like, okay, we have to do something about this. We have to figure this out for people. And I think a lot of that is through research and through proving that this exists, which now thankfully, you know, Global Lime Alliance has done through like Johns Hopkins and all of these other, you know, renowned research programs. But anyway, so I like blindly reached out to Global Lime Alliance through their like info email and I never heard anything back. And then 
like months later, I get this email back and they're like, yeah, we'll, we'll talk to you. And I was like, okay. And that's where the conversation started. And that's when I realized that I wasn't alone. And I ended up meeting another Lyme warrior, um, Casey Passon, who also lived here in Chicago. And she was the first person that I ever met that also had Lyme disease and had been through the same thing that I had. And um, I sat down with her at like a little restaurant in Lincoln Park. And I was like, let's do an event. Let's raise money. And she was kind of like, I think I came on a little bit too strong. (laughs) She thought I was crazy. And then I didn't hear from her. And then like two weeks later, she texted me and she's like, okay, let's do it. And that's, you know, how the whole thing started. Let's talk about how that relationship with the Global Lyme Alliance and now your fellow Lyme developed and what you, what unbelievably cool things you've been able to do together. Yeah. So we, her passion was food and cooking and she was a chef before she got sick. And then she ended up working for a nonprofit called One Table that hosts um, national Shabbat dinners to bring communities together and feed people and make that connection through food. And I'm a total foodie. I love food. And her and I, you know, due to the Lyme disease, we're both gluten, dairy, soy, and corn free. And I had thrown large events for clients for years. Basically, Global Lyme Alliance was like, we have no budget for this. So if you want to do it, you're going to have to get everything donated. So we ended up kind of going through all of our connections and getting everything donated. And we got like our space donated and we had, we went to like Chicago's top, top, top chefs to see if they would donate their time to come together for a night and each cook a gluten and dairy free dish for our guests. So her and I kind of conceptualized this whole thing and then ended up connecting with two other Lyme warriors, um, Laura and Darcy, who had their own, you know, connections within kind of the events and restaurant industry. And we all just kind of relentlessly tortured people into donating their time and, you know, their resources to work with us. And um, it was a really beautiful, powerful thing. And our first event we held now was about three years ago in August, and it was called the Sublime Soiree. And I think we had about, it was 175 attendees, and there was no goal of raising money because we just had no idea, you know, what we should be expecting or looking for. And I think we raised about $70,000. Um, And it was Global Lime Alliance's first ever event in the Midwest outside of New York. So we're very, very proud of that. And tragically, after the second annual Sublime Soiree, my friend and and fundraising co-chair, Casey, she passed away um, like four days after. I'm so sorry. Um, So that has been very difficult to work through but it just, that now is really what keeps me going. And I feel her, you know, odd as it sounds, I feel her all the time. So I know that that's what she would want. That's a, that's a, an unbelievable blessing that you had that relationship with her and that you're continuing the work uh, in her name. So thank you for sharing that with us. So 
One of the things that I wanted to share with you is uh, we here at Tick Bootcamp actually have different levels of, of hero. And we like to define the people who are uh, or describe people who are going through a Lyme disease battle as a warrior. But then there's another person, uh, a person who takes their talents and, and uses their talents to help other people. And we call them Lyme superheroes. And I have to tell you, you're an absolute Lyme superhero. And I, I can't tell you how much I'm enjoying talking with you and hearing your story. So as a, as a Lyme superhero, can you tell us what kinds of things you're planning to do in the future and what you've been able to do since the first fundraiser you did for the Global Lyme Alliance? Well, that's so kind of you. You just made my entire year. <laughs> I So since that first event, I've dedicated most of my like usable brain power and energy into fundraising. And it's challenging in the Midwest um, because we don't have the same kind of um, like nonprofit community that like New York has. So it's difficult to raise like millions and millions of dollars, but we do what we can. So this past year we hosted our third annual Sublime Soiree in honor of Casey. And so in total, we raised about a little over a hundred thousand dollars. But was what was really beautiful about that night that I would like to point out is that Global Lime Alliance allowed us to host a paddle raise where all of the money went direct to research to assist in funding a study in Casey's honor um, about the connection with Lyme disease and the brain and how it impacts the brain. And in, I think it was like four minutes, we raised like $35,000 all in Casey's name that would go to a research study. So that was a really beautiful thing. Um, And that is awesome. Yeah. And I, that's like, those are the moments where I'm like, I know you're here. I know you're still here and you're, you're helping with this. Um, but since then I've raised a little over $350,000 and all of that's gone to global Lyme Alliance. And I absolutely, you know, support other organizations. Wow. Um, I've gone, you know, to the live Lyme events out in Colorado and, I now recently have started donating to like Lyme Treatment Foundation to support patient grants. And I really try to like support everyone um, because I think every individual effort um, that these organizations are doing is so greatly needed. So I do a lot of fundraising um, and host a lot of events in Chicago. And then as of recently, I've turned some of my efforts towards um, like policy and lobbying for the Hagen Tick Act. So I was actually in February was in DC and I met with senators and congressmen and representatives from Illinois and Missouri um, because that's who was willing to see me. And that was very, very powerful. Um, And my husband and I actually, I went with my mom in February and my husband and I were planning on going back in May. And unfortunately now we're unable to do that due to the pandemic but we are going to keep fighting and keep lobbying because I really think that the policy changes will be, you know, the next phase of like justice for Lyme patients Um, because all of the research is great, but now we need insurance coverage to help to start helping people. Now, Alex, I think it's important for me to point out to our listeners that you are doing all this superhero work before you got to 67%, you raised the $350,000 and had all of these events. Um, you hosted all of these events 
and you were working on this policy effort before you got to 67%. Yes. And I think at times I sacrificed my own health and wellness on behalf of these efforts, but it's difficult not to. You know, you see what people are going through and um, you get the messages every day from people saying they're not sure, you know, if they can live another day. And still, I mean, it just makes me want to cry because, you know, so many people feel that way and are just not in the position to get help. And that's what we need to change. And that's why I'm happy, you know, at times to put my own healing on hold to try to make a difference. So I'm not saying anyone else should do that. Do not sacrifice (laughs) your own health um, on behalf of others. But, you know, we've got to be fiery and passionate about it. And as I get better, I'm just going to keep fighting this harder and harder. So that's why I'm dedicated to getting healthier even beyond 67% because then then we're all in trouble. I think we're all in trouble already, Alex, but let's, let, let's talk about some of the other things you're doing because it's not just the uh, fundraising that you're doing. You also have a beautiful Instagram where you're sharing some powerful information and you also had a podcast. So let's talk about each one of those uh, separately because uh, I, I do want to share with our listeners that I really loved your podcast and, and that's one of the reasons why we were so excited to have you on here because we knew you were going to be a, a really powerful guest. But let's focus on your Instagram first and what inspired you to start the Instagram that you started and how is that impacting people in the Lyme community? So I originally started my Instagram for my fashion blog and that's where I originally grew my following and it's been interesting because I've lost a lot of followers from that time in my life, but I've gained a lot of followers from the chronic illness community. And, you know, my whole goal on Instagram is just to bring awareness to things that um, maybe aren't talked about as openly, like mental health and chronic illness and just the stuff that we go through in our day-to-day life that's not like beautiful. Um, I think Instagram tends to be incredibly curated and Um, it's everyone's quote unquote highlight reel and that's not real life, you know, and it makes you feel like crap when you go on some people's Instagrams and you see this perfect, beautiful curated life. And in reality, excuse my language, but everyone has their own shit that they're dealing with. So that's kind of what inspired me to start putting myself out there more on Instagram and trying to bring resources to people um, and help them feel like they're not alone and build this sort like like this sense of community. And then eventually I started the In the Limelight podcast, um, which I used to do very regularly. And my whole goal was just to make information around chronic illness digestible for people um, because you read like these research studies and some of these blogs and um, it's very confusing and it takes a lot of brain power to digest it and understand it. And as you know, like living with Lyme brain, it can be very difficult. So I just wanted to break things down into layman's terms. And unfortunately I do not host the podcast as regularly as I should, but my husband actually last night was like, you should start it again during the quarantine. I was like, okay, you're right. I'll pick it back up. So, you know, I just try to do things to help people and bring joy to people's lives. And um, 
you know, I've been lucky enough to build a really strong community online and I'm just going to keep trying to do that. Well, I, I want to join your husband in his urging you to take up your podcast again, because it was really, really good. And, you know, again, we're blessed to have you on our podcast and you're blessing all of our listeners, but I think you could bless people on a more regular basis if you found the time and energy to restart your podcast, because it really was great. Thank you. I'm, I'm going to try, but we're also, we're lucky to have tick boot camp. So I'm so happy that since, you know, I got sick, all of these amazing resources um, have popped up. I think it's been a really powerful thing for our entire community. So Alex, tell us what your future goals are now that you've gone through this unbelievably beautiful transformation. And by the way, I have to take issue with your argument that your Instagram isn't beautiful. It's absolutely beautiful. <laughs> but moving forward, now that you have all this energy that, and again, I don't know how anyone can compete with you even at 67%, but let's, uh, let's, let's not focus on that number too much, even though it's making me laugh. Um, <laughs> what, what, what does the future hold and how can we all help you to achieve these unbelievably powerful goals that you're setting for yourself? I think that a big thing for me is, you know, I know I already said it as I keep getting better, you know, I just want to help more and more people and um, really be a champion for this illness and for people suffering with this illness. And I will make sure that we see a change in our lifetime for people living with tick-borne disease. And I think the best thing that people can do to support me in that journey is using your voice, speaking up, um, and you know, no effort is too big or too small, but we can all do something and um, chip in one way or another. And I always tell people, it doesn't have to be monetary, right? Like if I'm doing something, it doesn't have to be a monetary donation. You can write a letter to your congressman, you can write a letter to your senator, and also, you know, in support of like the Kay Hagen Tick Act and all of these other individual efforts, I will have representatives, congressmen, senators reach out to me to say, hey, I'm trying to push through this legislation. Can you please get people to call, you know, this senator and this congressman every day until this goes to the floor? And I do, I do my best effort to get people to do that. And we've been really successful in the past in Michigan and in Illinois. Something that I would be so grateful for is as I put out those call to actions, if people would take some time and respond and speak up, because I, like I said, I really feel like the next piece of this tick-borne illness crusade for justice is to have our voices heard and um, to get legislation pushed through to help people so we can act on all the amazing research that places like Global Lyme Alliance and Live Lyme Foundation and Bay Area Lyme Foundation are spending all this money to do. Well, Alex, I can commit to you right now that anything you want us to help you with, we will absolutely help you with. So please stay in Thank touch you. with us and let us know. Oh, I will. So I have one final request for you. In the event that, God forbid, your husband came into your room tomorrow and showed you the, that he had a tick biting him on his leg, mm -hmm. what would you have him do so that he wouldn't have to go on the terrible journey that you've had to go on? 
Well, I think we are so tick aware and I know that that doesn't mean, you know, you 100% won't get bit because you can't, you know, promise that to anyone, but him and I are so aware. And I say to him all the time, you know, if you ever get bit, like we're in trouble because I am not functional the way I used to be. And I rely on him for a lot of things and thank God he, you know, supports me and is an amazing human being. But, you know, we wear light colored clothing. We spray ourselves with tick spray. We no longer go to Northern Michigan. And he's very, very careful. But the first thing I would do is, you know, make sure that I get it out and I get it out correctly. And like the next day we would be going to my LLMD and we would be doing whatever we had to do to make sure that he did not end up like me because I do not want anyone to suffer the way that I've suffered, you know, especially not my husband or a family member. Um, And I know that not everyone has that resource of like knowing right away what to do, but that's why things like this are so important to spread education and let people know, you know, the resources that they have at their fingertips that, you know, they're just not currently aware of. Thank you for listening to the Tick Bootcamp interview with our guest, Alex Moresco. To our listeners, we have a call to action. First, if you'd like to learn more about Alex Moresco and her tick disease journey, please follow her Instagram at Ali T. Moresco, A-L-I-T-M-O-R-E-S-C-O. Second, if you enjoyed this episode of the Tick Bootcamp podcast interview with Ali Moresco, please share it with your friends by using the social media buttons you see at the bottom of the post. Third, we here at Tick Bootcamp have created a Tick by Blueprint, which has been inspired by the information that has been provided to us by past podcast guests. We urge you to visit our website at www.tickbootcamp.com to view the blueprint. Please note, we would appreciate any input or improvements you would like to share. Fourth, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Google Play Music, or Spotify to get your automatic episode updates of our Tick Bootcamp podcast.